0: Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. And today we have another episode in our series highlighting women of color leading progressive organizations. Today, we will hear from Kat Calvin, founder of Spread the Vote, and Lakshmi Sheridan, Interim Executive Director of South Asian Americans Leading Together. First up, we'll hear from Kat. Approximately 21 million Americans don't have a voter ID. This is why the work of Spread the Vote is important. In addition to helping with voter IDs, Kat and her team help people get registered to vote and make voting plans to help ease challenges with transportation, childcare, voter education, and more to allow people to show up on Election Day. We're really pumped to have you on to talk about all the great work that you're doing with Spread the Vote. And when I went to your website, what I love is one of the first things you see is the saying, an ID today is a vote tomorrow. So tell us a little bit more about the critical work you're doing to make sure that people have what they need to vote.
1: Uh, Sure, so um, at Spread the Vote, we help people get government-issued ID. Uh, And that can be challenging for anyone, but particularly for people who don't and maybe have it for a while, had photo ID because if you don't have an ID you can't get a job, you can't get housing, you can't get a lot of types of medical care, uh, shelters, that don't let you sleep there if you have ID. Really, you know, ID is really something you need for every part of life. Uh, We keep a long list because I'm now like the lady on the internet that everybody sends things you need ID for. And in 34 states, uh, you need ID or identification of some kind in order to vote. What that looks like varies by state. Um, All 50 states, for a variety of reasons, technically, are voter ID states. I consider them in certain ways, uh, but there are many states where it's on the books that if you don't have x types of ids you can't vote uh so not only do people not have the idea that they need to just live healthy and productive lives, uh, but they also don't have the thing that they need in order to access a basic right of citizenship, which is voting. Uh, So at Spread the Vote, we help people get those IDs so that they can use them 365 days a year for everything they need just to rebuild and, and live their lives. And then we also make sure that they have everything they need so that on election day, we can take them to the polls.
0: That is great, and you just named so many things that you need an ID for, and you do a lot of work focusing on getting IDs for the formerly incarcerated, which is extremely important. So criminal justice reform is an issue that I'm very passionate about especially because this population doesn't get a lot of attention and people don't realize that women, especially young black and brown girls, are unfortunately becoming a sizable portion of the prison population. And they're entering at a young age due to the school to prison pipeline. So getting an ID is very important for them too.
1: You know, it's important on all sides of the process. So, you know, there are so many people who I'm have to seek alternative means of providing for themselves and their family because they don't have the things that they need in order to, you know, to get a job and to be secure. And so, you know, that on the front end can be incredibly painful. I, you know, we also work with a lot of victims of domestic violence who, when they escape, don't have anything. And then in order to survive, have to have to make tough choices. Um, but then, when folks are released from prison or jail or wherever, because one of the things we've learned is it's not just people who have been serving felonies for a long time who don't have IDs. We work with a lot of county jails where people are just there without even having been convicted of anything, you know. And uh, when they're arrested and put in jail, all of their things are thrown away, and then they get out two weeks later, two months later, however much, and they don't have the ID they walked in with. Um, and when you're, you know, you disappear for a few weeks, you lose your job, you can lose your house, you lose everything, and all of a sudden their lives are ruined, and they were never even convicted of anything. Um, and so we work with, a lot of uh, of people in a variety of ways we go into uh, county jails and prisons and detention centers um in many of our states to help get ids for folks who are um, you know currently incarcerated and going to be released soon to help you know work with people like as soon as they're released uh we work with a lot of different organizations that are working with people who are formerly and currently
2: incarcerated
0: And I actually just saw a tweet from you where you said a jail had reached out to you because they wanted to get IDs for several of the people that are going to be released. And you're also raising money to help with that because you do need funding to help people get IDs and get their life back on track.
1: We do. So our average ID cost is $40. Um, and that doesn't, you know, a lot of, well, pretty much everyone when they get out of a prisoner jail leaves with some sort of fines or fees. It's one of the many ways that we've set up the criminal justice system to make sure that people fail when they get out. There are very, very, very few, every once in a while we encounter like a county jail that has a good system, but there are very, very few um, corrections facilities that have any sort of system set up for helping people get IDs when they get out, even though they know that they need them. So we work with a lot of of facilities themselves who have asked us to come in and help. Uh, We have several departments of corrections, including a very large state that just asked us if we could help get IDs for all of the people I'm born out of state. Who are released from all of their jails and prisons. I'm every month, which would be an average of eighteen thousand dollars a month, um, which they of course will not pay for. Um, if anyone is born out of state, then they will not pay for an out of state birth certificate, and that's a place where they come for us um, and ask us to come in and help um, because they just can't get funding for that. And you know, in a lot of states, that adds up to thousands and thousands of people every year. And so for us, then we're a very small nonprofit run by a little black. Girl, thinking, okay, how do I find an extra a, extra eighteen thousand dollars a month to be able to help these folks who really need IDs to rebuild their lives? And really, the state should be paying for it, but they're not. And that's we, you know, we have a lot of state and government agencies that ask us to help them because we are the only national organization that gets IDs, and we've built custom tech. We've done a lot to get very good at it, but we are not, you know, an entire state with a state budget. Um, and so we always sort of joke that we're sort of a secret state agency. There are, you know, there are millions and millions. Over 21 million people who need IDs, I'm, um, and government agencies aren't helping with that.
0: Now, you're also doing a lot of work around focusing on our LGBTQ sisters, especially those that are homeless youth and trans women would love to hear more about how that work is going. I think, especially given some of the things that we're seeing coming out of this presidential administration around rights for trans individuals.
1: I mean, you know, for us, we are we are both limited and not by the fact that we have to follow the laws of the state, right? We gather all of the documents that the Department of Motor Vehicles or whatever it's called in your state requires for you to go and get an ID. Each individual person, we work with them and say, okay, do you need a... New birth certificate, a name change form, uh, you know, proof of residency, whatever, whatever it is, and we get those documents. So, so you know, we do a lot of work helping people. You know, we pay for a lot of birth certificates. We. Have volunteers who are very good at like going to court to get name changes and things like that. You know, we we do whatever we can to help people comply with the laws that exist in order to be able to get new IDs. And so depending on what each individual's circumstance is, it you know sometimes does mean that we have to do whatever is necessary to make sure that when we take someone to the DMV, their application is approved and they're able to get an ID.
0: So I definitely want to talk about voter ed, which is spread the vote civic and voter education program. And we all know that civics in schools just isn't what it used to be anymore. And I used to work in the Obama administration at the Department of Labor. And whenever I traveled with the secretary, so many people thought that we took care of things that we didn't. We had to let them know these aren't federal level issues. These are actually things that you have to deal with at the state and local government level. Which is important because the state and local government does have the biggest impact on people's lives, and we do need more voter engagement there. So, can you tell us more about this program and how our listeners can support the work that you're doing with Voter Ed?
1: We are 100% focused on on voter education for adults and for our clients. So, 77% of our clients have never voted before. And for us, you know. And, and one of my sort of just big things on a personal level is, you know, yes, we need a lot more civics in school, but if you get civics in sixth grade and then you walk away and you never get it again, then when you're 18 or 30, and there's no way you're going to know what the board of supervisors is or what the secretary of labor does, all populations of all educational levels, all demographics, all races, everybody, nobody understands how the government works in this country. Uh, and we were pulling up election guides and they were just really advanced and I'm um, and not designed for first time voters. Um, and particularly first-time voters who may be first-time voters in their 40s, 50s, or 70s, which we've had. And so we started by building our own election guides, which we now do every year, that are very sort of voting 101. Here's how you vote. Here's what your rights are. Here's what you're voting for, like what this office actually does, along with who your options are. Um, and that has been really helpful and a really great way for us to help make sure that our clients are all empowered to go to the polls. Uh, we have we have a huge problem in this country with how People with disabilities being told that they can't vote, regardless of what that disability is and what the law actually is. Um, and we we work with a lot of, of disabled clients who say, oh, well, I've always been told we can't vote. It's like, no, of course you can vote. You can vote. And here's all the things they have to have at your polling place to make sure you can vote. You know, and so we have built out these modules and we've got partners all over the country uh, who are working with now and testing out, all right, how do we set this up to make it as easy as possible for our partners to be able to create some sort of regular system where they're educating their clients and where we're tracking the impact and where we're making sure that feels completely empowered when they walk into their polling place to know exactly what they're doing and exactly how they want to vote.
0: All right, Kat. So you are clearly an expert on this. We're going to be going into 2020 by this time. I feel we're in 2020 we've finished the November elections in 2019 Give our listeners three things that they can do to better help people be prepared to vote.
1: Um, Ooh, okay. Well, I will be doing a whole series on this next year, so you can uh, stay tuned. Uh, But 83% of eligible voters in this country are registered to vote. Only about 50% actually turn out. And those tens and tens of millions of people in between that are the audience we need to capture. That's the largest population of voters in America is registered voters who don't vote. So when we're looking at how we're actually thinking about voter turnout, how we're thinking about how we're working to help people vote, what we need to be looking at is what are all of the barriers that stop people in my community from voting? Things like transportation is huge, right? Childcare is huge. Education is a really big um, barrier for people. Um, if you speak English as a second language, if you have a disability, you know, very real and sort of imagined because they've been ginned up by uh, by the press and social media. Fears on election security. Uh, you know, if you if you work uh, an hourly job and you need a boss to let you go off to vote you can't, right? And so there are so many different things that stop people who want to vote and who are registered to vote from actually voting, uh, and those are the things we really need to focus on in our communities. You know, one of the things that um, happened a lot in 18 that was great that I'm hoping happens happens a lot in 2020, is a lot of people put on voting parties and invited their friends and had fabulous brunches and invited, you know, nerds like me who like to talk a lot to talk about what was on the ballot, and then talk through and debate the ballot measures and etc., and really have a sense of what was on the ballot, which made it much more likely that they were going to go to vote and feel confident and turn in their ballots. So thinking about, are my friends voting? Because a lot of your friends are not voting. And a lot of your friends are not not voting because they don't think it's important or because they don't care, but because voting is really hard in this country. Um, And so I think looking at what are your friends and family doing? What are the needs in your community? And then, you know, I think the, the last piece is really focusing, and you said this before, and i was so glad, on state and local elections. You know, we all focus on the Iron Throne. And it's all anyone talks about is presidential, presidential, presidential. Well, and it is when you talk to people about voting, especially people who don't vote often, and you just talk about the presidential election, you know, what we find is one of the first things they will say is, well, yeah, but there's like 50 million people voting for that. Fine, that's fair. And electoral college and it's really confusing and that it's a fair perspective of someone who's never voted before. But when you talk to them and you say, okay, but let me talk to you about city council or the mayor or the sheriff or, you know, the House of Representatives, which are all local elections, and how small those margins of victories are, right? But it'll be you. And depending on the size of your town, how critical those state local elections are, that those offices are really the ones that run your life and how few people decide who gets those offices. That's when people really start to open up and wake up and realize how important their vote is. And then when they're in there voting for all those things, the president will be on the ballot anyways, and they'll vote for someone. But it is far less likely to attract people who are afraid that their vote doesn't matter than if they understand how critical their voice is to deciding local elections.
0: Worry Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. I was so excited to do their free home try-on program, because it was time for a new pair of glasses and is perfect for busy people like me who don't have a ton of time to go into a store but still desperately wants new glasses. With our home try-on program, you pick out five pairs of glasses and they send them to you for free. You can try them on for five days and then send the ones you don't want back with a prepaid return shipping label. There's no obligation to buy. I selected five pairs and enjoyed the variety of styles and colors and the super simple and easy way to return them. You can take their online quiz to find a pair that is perfect for you. Answer a few quick questions and they'll suggest some great looking glasses that are totally personalized to fit your face and style. Glasses are at $95 including prescription lenses. Lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. I'm also excited to tell you about Scout by Warby Parker. Their new comfortable, breathable, and affordable daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. Wear Scout by Warby Parker contact lenses for less than $1.25 a day. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5, and then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Order the free home try-on program or request a trial of Scout contact lenses for just $5. Visit worbyparker.com backslash BGG to learn more. Again, that's worbyparker.com backslash BGG. South Asian Americans Leading Together, SALT, is a national, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that fights for racial justice and advocates for the civil rights of all South Asians in the United States. In her role, Lakshmi helps the organization achieve its ultimate vision of dignity and full inclusion for all. Lakshmi, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Good.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Very excited to talk to you about the work that SALT does. And for our listeners, a little background, SALT stands for South Asian Americans Leading Together, and it is a wonderful organization. And you really do focus a lot on social justice work, which we know is something that is so desperately needed right now in communities of color. So can you give us a little bit of background about what the purpose and the founding of the group was about?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, So SALT actually um, really began in the wake of the events of 9-11 and the backlash of violence that many of our community members faced mainly those who were uh, Muslim or racialized as Muslim. And so that was really the impetus for beginning the organization. Um, Some of the early ideas for forming SALT were actually originated even before that, but that became really the, the big push to create the organization, which really formalized in 2002. And I think given the, uh, and I was not part of the organization at the time, but the founding board and eventually the executive director, Deepa Iyer, who emerged at that time, really, I think, understood that um, while leadership development sort of seemed like a direction that the organization could take, they really felt that having a strong policy agenda in the South Asian American community that was aligned with other communities of color would be an important step forward for the organization. And so kind of evolving from focusing just on hate violence and, um, and hate crimes in the wake of 9-11, um, the policy agenda was built out to include immigrant justice and also civil rights and civil liberties.
0: Yeah, absolutely, because when we talk a lot about social justice, most people really do focus on the political activism, but we also know that social justice is very much rooted in policy when it comes to civil rights and liberties, and you all have done a lot of research on this, which is really fascinating to understand the connection between the two.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of times folks think about civic engagement and voter turnout, and but for us, our focus really has been, like you said, on the policy issues and having a strong policy agenda. As you also said, showing the relationship between those three issues. Some of the work that we've done in the last few years has really shown the relationship between the increase in surveillance of communities of color and also the, um, you know, then the violence that we also see, uh, the hate violence that we see um, against our communities. Um, And so really connecting state violence to interpersonal violence, whether it's um, police violence that disproportionately impacts Black communities or hate violence that we see uh, in a lot of Muslim Arab and Sikh communities, you know, we can tie that back to, to policies of the state. You know, something like the Muslim ban, which is explicitly sanctioning the exclusion of, of particular communities. You know, it's no surprise that the majority of the hate violence that we've documented in our communities stems from anti-Muslim sentiment. And so those are some of the trends that we're trying to look at so that we don't simply see an act of violence as just interpersonal random acts of violence, but deeply connected to, um, to state policies that are continually racializing our communities, targeting our communities.
0: And I just, there's so many things I love about SALT, and I'm sure our listeners are like, oh, there goes Ashanti again, just talking about all the things that she loves, But when I look at the work you do, you do really look at how all of our experiences are connected and how what happens to one community does have an impact on another community and you all are doing so much work around tracking detained Asian immigrants. And I do want to focus on that for a second because when we talk about immigration, it is mainly in regards to the Latinx community, and a lot of people do forget that there are Asians and people from the African diaspora that are impacted by immigration and the cruel, horrible treatment that we see under this administration, and it's impacting people from countries all across the world.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you for raising that, and that that has been an issue that's really important to us, and. And it's um, you know the way we approach that is not to really take away the communities that are you know most largely impacted by those issues, which which does tend to be the Latinx community, given just sort of our history of immigration policy. But to really show the range of communities who are impacted, which certainly includes folks from the African diaspora and um, and, and Asian countries. And so we, you know, one of the things that we've been doing, um, and, and there are many local groups on the ground who we work with that have been observing the, um, who live along the U S Mexico border and have been seeing, um, the number of people who are, um, crossing the border and seeking asylum and supporting them. And what we've been doing at the national level has really been documenting the rise in, um, specifically South Asian asylum seekers. And, you know, we saw a rise just between 2017 and 2018, triple the number of just asylum seekers from India alone who were um, apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border. That number went up from 3,000 in fiscal year 2017 to 9,000 in fiscal year 2018. And that certainly is a narrative which we really don't hear a lot about. And when these migrants do come to the U.S., they're often um, sharing their migration pathways from South and Central America. Um, Once they fly into one of those countries, they're joining other migrants from other countries by foot, crossing the U.S.-Mexico border and seeking asylum. And I think particularly for migrants from African nations and Asian um, nations, there's um, very little understanding of the political and religious repression that folks are facing in their countries of origin, and just a real denial of um, asylum claims across the board. And then, of course, the really poor treatment of asylum seekers in detention. Many of them are languishing in facilities for, for years without their cases being heard. And so these are some of the stories that we've been uplifting, and particularly in El Paso, the work that we've been doing with the Detained Migrant Solidarity Committee and advocates visitors for immigrants in detention. Those are two groups in El Paso that support migrants um, from the African diaspora, Asian diaspora, and Latinx countries, and and we've and they've just been doing tremendous work with asylum seekers. Um, in our case, who are from South Asia, who have gone on hunger strike actually to protest. The really terrible conditions they're facing in detention, which include denial of religious accommodations, lack of language access, which is mandated under the law, forced solitary confinement, and then just really brutal force feeding um, when they go on hunger strike. These are some of the conditions that asylum seekers are facing and and uh, through our work, and really the credit goes to the local groups um for asylum seekers have been released, um, this year with with the advocacy efforts. And so, um, we plan to continue raising awareness about this.
0: Given everything that you talked about, what are some of the ways that our listeners can support your work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're always excited to have, uh, supporters and, um, A lot of the work that we do is, you know, creating reports and fact sheets and and really helping kind of shift the narrative um, about our communities and about these issues in the media. And so I think we always appreciate people just spreading the word about SALT and really kind of participating in our political education efforts that at this time we're trying to do through the ways in which we write op-eds or frame our fact sheets and resources and so I think really getting the word out in that way is really critical and having difficult conversations um, with family members and community members where there may be disagreement around some of the issues and the impacts that we're seeing in our community. Those are some really valuable ways to be involved in our work. We do, of course, always have events and um other things where we are looking for volunteers. And so um, I really encourage everyone to go to salt.org and sign up to be part of our mailing list. That's a great way to stay plugged into our efforts. Uh, We do talk about some of the work that's happening locally in in different areas outside of DC with our partners, as well as national work that we're coordinating in DC that folks can plug into. And then lastly, we always encourage people who can and are able to um, to make a donation to Salt um, as well to support our work which can also be done on our
0: website. Wonderful. And you talked a lot about the political work that you do. And I do want us to talk for a moment about your program that you have, the Young Leaders Institute at SALT. When I'm out traveling, I'm very fortunate enough to meet some of the listeners of the podcast. And I know we have lots of young Asian women who are college students who love the podcast and are most likely listening now. So can you tell us about how they can get involved with the Young Leaders Institute that you run?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're so proud of our Young Leaders Institute program. That is um, essentially a political education program that occurs during the summer where we have college age students, whether they're enrolled in a, in a college uh, university program or not, um, are eligible to apply. And um, it's basically a weekend long training on a specific issue. Um, and then the young people then go back to their communities or their campuses and implement a project. Um, throughout the school year. And so we unfortunately had to kind of put the program on hiatus right now due to some funding challenges, but that is a program that we um, hope to have back up and running in 2020. And we are posting updates on our website and definitely encourage folks to check it out. We also encourage, um, while our program is sort of being reshaped and, um, and revived, we encourage uh, folks to check out the Bay Area Solidarity Summer um, and others like that in different regions in the country. There's one in um, Chicago, um, Chicago, Desi Summer and others um, that also provide a really strong political education kind of summer program that um, that we work very closely with and, and encourage you to check those out too.
0: All right. We'll move into our final question that we ask all of our guests. What advice do you have for the brown girls out there listening, saying, I want to be just like her?
2: What's really shaped me and been so important for my own learning and growth to this point um, was being very grounded in local work. Um, First, before working um, here now in D.C. at the national level. Um, And I worked in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina for almost six years. And I feel like that experience um, and just being someone who's from the South, and um, was rooted in a really strong racial justice framework from an early age, actually worked in communities of color that were not my own um, up until this point, I think really grounded me in, in strong racial justice principles and also really helped me understand what the direct impact on the ground is of policies before actually working to try to shape and change them at the national level. And so I think I think actually having that experience, and it doesn't matter where you're from or what community you do that in, I just think it's really important to have that that on-the-ground experience with directly impacted people it is so critical, and so that's really what I encourage for everyone, and I think bringing that lens to the national work is what we really need very badly in D.C., um, and so really encourage everyone out there um, who has that experience um, uh, to come to D.C., and help us stay grounded um, and make good choices around policy.
0: That is awesome. So great. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. And we'll make sure that we link all of these great resources on the BGG Visit the show notes to find the websites for Spread the Vote and SALT. Stay up to date with us in between episodes on the BGG website, www.thebggguide.com, and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at the BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at wmn.media and on Twitter at wmn media. Until next time, Brown Girls. Hey everyone, Ashanti here. I wanted to invite you to check out another podcast that you'll love called Parenting and Politics. Parenting and Politics is a podcast that looks at parenting through a political lens. The host and creator, Diana Limongi, wants parents to know that they have power and that they can make a difference. She has interviewed guests on topics such as reproductive freedom, early childhood education, asylum-seeking families, the power of black moms and activist fatigue, just to name a few. Because Diana is a parent and activist, she always takes the time to discuss self-care with her guests as well. Every conversation will leave you inspired and make you want to take action to change the world. If you're a parent that wants to be informed, empowered, and inspired, check out Parenting and Politics wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also check them out on Instagram at Parenting and Politics. Tell her your friends from the BGG sent you.